Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat, for this opportunity you have given us to not only breathe in the breath of life and to experience the world around us, but, Father, that you have given us the opportunity to come together as Mishpacha's family to worship you and to hear from you. Father, I pray that as we open up your word this morning that you will speak into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your voice heard, your words received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have already ordained for this purpose. In the name of Yeshua, Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. So this week we are in Parsha to Ramah, uh, which comes from uh, Exodus 24, uh, 1, uh, 25, 1, sorry, through 27, 19. Uh, it's uh, a really interesting part. There's a lot of very finite details as we look through the description of how God has ordained uh, for the tabernacle, the Mishkan, to be built and all of the pieces that uh, go into that puzzle. Uh, but it's a really interesting part when we kind of get down to the nitty-gritty of exactly what it is the Lord is saying, because I believe that there's something tremendous here in, in terms of the depth of our spiritual walk with Him that we need to understand and grasp from the idea and the concept of the Mishkan or the tabernacle. So if you'll open up to uh, Exodus 25, verse 1. It says, Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Tell B'nai Israel, tell the children of Israel to take up an offering for me from anyone whose heart compels him. You are to take up my offering. And uh, we'll, I'm not going to go into reading all of the different pieces of the offering that were called forth, gold and silver and so on. But uh, it's interesting that as we look at those uh, specifications that God gave, many of them are things that we know they left Egypt with, right? Because the Lord said, go and talk to your neighbors and you'll leave with their wealth. And they left with a vast amount of wealth. But then there's some really weird things in here that you got to wonder where in the world it came from, like goat hair, uh, which we know they, they had all the goats running around with them. Uh, the silled, sill skins, they're in the middle of the desert. Where are they coming up with sill skins from? I haven't seen sills surfing on the sands of the desert yet, but uh, uh, the, then you've got the, um, the acacia wood and uh, so on and so forth, these kinds of things that are a part of this uh, description of the things that were necessary to build the tabernacle, the things that God had already ordained for the purpose of the tabernacle. And as I look at it, it's, it's kind of amazing because we've got the only understanding we can come up with uh, and, and this is, is actually what Jewish tradition says as well, is that there was some sort of divine miraculous uh, orchestration that occurred. Uh, there's one narrative in, in uh, Midrash that says that, um, that the, the wood that was used for the beam that runs along the entirety of the tabernacle, that it was actually, there was a tree that Abraham had planted at some point, and God sent his angels to go and cut this tree down and form it into the wood that was needed, and they miraculously flew it to Israel in the middle of the desert and handed it to them. And uh, as to whether or not that happened, I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, it's kind of a cool story. If it did happen, um, I'd like to see the video. Uh, if it's not Facebook official, it's not official. Um, but I'd like. But nonetheless, we got to understand that there had to have been some sort of miraculous workings that went on for some of these uh, necessary items to be a part of the building of the tabernacle. And when we look at uh, the building of the temple, we realize that's exactly what 
what happened? The Lord softened the hearts of the, the leaders around Israel so that they would provide the wood and the stone and the things that were necessary for Israel to build the temple for the Lord. And so we can, we can see in how he softened people's hearts there that it's very likely something similar in the miraculous sense occurred for Israel in the wilderness. And we skip to verse 8. It says, have them make a sanctuary for me. So now we understand why the offering's being collected. It's not like Moses is walking around with a, a, a plate uh, on Sunday morning and you know, making people throw some money in it so they can go to... It's, it's literally a purpose to this particular offering that the Lord is commanding. He says, have them make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. And it's really interesting that he says, I want you to take up an offering, but only from those who willingly want to give of their own heart, those who want to give themselves for this purpose, and it's for my sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. You are to make it all precisely according to everything that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and that pattern, uh, and the pattern of all the furnishings within, just so you must make it. Now, there are to, uh, they are to make, two, uh, make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits in length, one and a half cubits width, and, cub, uh, and a cubit and a half uh, high. You are to overlay it with pure gold inside and out and make a crown of gold around it. You are to cast four rings of gold for it and place them in its four feet. Two rings will be on uh, one side and two rings on the other side. Also make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You are to put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark in order to carry the ark. The poles are to remain in the, uh, in the rings of the ark and not be taken from it. You are to, to put the testimony which I will give you into the ark. So as we look through this, there's a couple of really interesting things. First and foremost is uh, verse 80 says, have them make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. And uh, the, sh uh, the Shalom, which is a, a, a rabbi uh, from the, the 1600s, had this to say about this particular part, she said, uh, this particular line. He says, the verse does not say, and I will dwell within it. In other words, within the tabernacle. Uh, it says the, that it actually says, I will dwell within them or among them, within each and every one of them. So as we look at the way that the Hebrews worded and even the, the way it's translated here in the Tree of Life version, is it doesn't say, I want you to build a sanctuary so that I can live in the sanctuary, right? It says, I want you to build a sanctuary so that I can dwell among them or within them, within the people of Israel. Verse 9, you are to make it all precisely according to everything that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of the furnishings within it, just so you must make it. And the word here for tabernacle is the word mishkan, which is what we use in Hebrew to speak of the tabernacle. And the word mishkan itself actually comes from the root word uh, uh, shechan, which means to dwell. Uh, this is also the same root word for the word shechinah, as in the divine glory or the divine presence of God. Uh, so the Shekhinah is where God dwells with us. So the Mishkan was meant to be uh, his dwelling place among his people. The Mishkan was literally a place where God would dwell in the midst of his people. And it's interesting as we look at in, in further Parshot, so we look at the description of the way that the, the tribes of Israel camped around the, the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was in the center, and then you had the Kohanim on the east side, the, the Aaron and his sons on the east side, of the tabernacle, and then you had the other three tribes or three parts of the Levitical tribe uh, on the, the west, south, and north sides of the tabernacle, and they formed a barrier around the tabernacle in the presence of the Lord, and then all the rest of the tribes camped around the, the, on the outside of them, of the, the, the Levites around that. And so what we see is you've got the presence of the Lord, and then at the entrance to the tabernacle going into the presence camps the people who can actually go into the presence of the Lord, the priesthood, the 
themselves, the Aaronic priesthood, the, the descendancy of Aaron, and then around the, the, the other sides that you cannot access the tabernacle from were the Levites, the ones who served the tabernacle and served the priesthood within the tabernacle. And so they formed a barrier, if you would, from Israel so that even if Israel, the tribes of Israel, uh, found themselves in a position where they may have been unclean, thus making it where the presence of the Lord could not dwell in the midst of Israel, there's still a holy barrier between the presence of God and the nation of Israel. And even at that, the curtains of the tabernacle serve as a holy barrier between the presence of God and the Levites. And it's really interesting as we see how all of this comes together and we recognize that the reality of what God really wanted to do and what he wanted to do most was dwell in the midst of his people. And we go back to creation, that's exactly what he desired. He created us, actually, I think inversely, he created us to dwell in his midst, right? He created us to dwell in his midst. That was the whole point of the Garden of Eden was that we could reside with the presence of the Lord. And we know that in John 3, 16, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believe in him will have everlasting life. He wants us again to reside in his presence, to dwell in his presence, but in the meantime, because of sin, because we've chosen to separate ourselves, to put up a barrier between ourselves and the presence of the Lord, and the presence of the Lord cannot reside in the midst of sin, the Lord instead has to reside in our midst. And so in the nation of Israel, it was literally in the center of the tribes of Israel, in the center of the nation of Israel that his presence dwelled. And the nation of Israel could look to him, but they couldn't experience him in a literal sense like the uh, high priest could on uh, Yom Kippur once a year going into the Holy of Holies. And so it's interesting as we look at this that we serve a God who wants nothing more than to dwell in our midst or more specifically us to dwell in him. And as we move to the Bruch HaDashah, we start to see that image come together and that picture come together with what the Lord is trying to do. So in verse 17, he continues on, uh, then you are to make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one cubit and a half wide. Also make two cherubim uh, of gold from hammered work at, a, at the end, two ends of the atonement cover, make one uh, cherub uh, at one end and one cherub at the other end of the one piece with the atonement cover. You are to make the cherubim at its two ends. The cherubim are to spread out their wings above, shielding the atonement cover with their wings, each facing its companion. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the atonement cover. You are to put the atonement cover on the top of the ark, and inside the ark you will put the testimony that I will give you. I will meet with you there. I will speak with you from above the atonement cover, from between the two cherubim uh, that are on the ark of the testimony about all that I will command you for B'nai Israel, for the children of Israel. So we see a couple of different uh, things, uh, words used in reference to the ark in the Torah. First, we see the Aron, uh, the Aron uh, Habrit, which is the Ark of the Covenant, uh, and within it stood the rest of the, tab the tablets that actually contain the covenant, or the ten words, the Aseret Hadibrot, the sign of the covenant in the, the Ark of the Covenant. But we also see here this phrase used for the exact same piece of furniture, the Ark of the Testimony. And in Hebrew, it's Aron Ha'edut, ha uh, which means the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Witness. And upon the, uh, the, or within the ark, as I said, contained the actual tablets with the, the ten words or the covenant that Israel agreed to with Adonai. They said, Lord, everything you say we will do. And then later on, after the covenant's made, they say everything, they ratify it by saying everything you say we will do and obey. And so that covenant or the tablets, which remind us of that covenant, stand as a witness within the ark. And, and it's interesting that there were actually two tablets, because how many witnesses does the word of God say is required for anything to be true? 
two or more, right? So there's two tablets which serve as a witness before Israel of the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. But then we go further and it says, and on the mercy seat or the, the covering of the, uh, the Aron Ha'edut, Ha'edut, the uh, Ark of the Testament, the Ark of the Witness, sat uh, the, the, the two cherubim, the, the two uh, kind of angel-like beings on top of it. And these two served as a witness before the presence of the Lord between Israel and God. And then we have Aaron and Moses who were the two that were able to interact with the tablet tabernacle with the temple uh, as the high priest. And so we have this image of these witnesses standing between or before Israel and God as a witness to the covenant that was made between the people of Israel and Adonai. And we see this image of two or more witnesses over and over and over again. And so not only do we have two or more, we actually have as many as six witnesses between the tablets, the Cherubim and Aaron and Moses. We have as many as six witnesses, each coming two by two as witnesses before the Lord and before Israel of the covenant that was made. And so as we look at this, we recognize that the tabernacle had a very specific purpose. It was a place for the presence of God to dwell among his people. And then beyond that, we recognize that God actually commanded Moses to build it, as the Torah says, exactly as Moses saw in heaven. So when Moses was on Mount Sinai and the Lord was revealing this, uh, the, the idea of what the tabernacle, the Mishkan, was to look like, as he's revealing this to Moses, Moses is literally getting a, a sight into heaven. He's getting to see the heavenlies themselves and he's getting to see the tabernacle that already stands within the heavenlies. And when we think about Yeshua saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you, we know what he was going to prepare. What was he going to prepare? Did the tabernacle not exist before? No, the, the heavenly tabernacle already existed. He was going to prepare a place for us by cleansing the heavenly tabernacle with his own blood that we could be made clean and righteous to enter into the tabernacle and not need the, the earthly, our own, uh, the earthly uh, high priest, uh, the earthly Kohen Hagadol, the high priest to go in before us. And what's really interesting here, and, and one of the most discouraging things, I think, within the history of Israel for me, uh, I think the biggest mistake Israel ever made was moving from the tabernacle to the temple. Without a doubt, personally, I think this was the biggest mistake that Israel ever made. Now, that doesn't mean that God didn't or hasn't used it. We know that there's so much of, uh, of messianic prophecy that dwells around the tabernacle and its standing, its existence, and even, uh, to some degree, the rebuilding of the tabernacle in terms of end-time prophecy. But personally, I think the biggest mistake we ever made was building the temple. And here's why. The tabernacle was made for a specific purpose, to be mobile, right? It was made to be able to pack up and carry with us, particularly so that the presence of the Lord, which reside upon the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, could lead us on our journey. So we had to literally and physically follow the presence of the Lord, the Shekhinah, the divine glory, the dwelling of God, in order for us to make our journey. And we couldn't move unless the presence of God lifted, notifying us it was time to go. And when the presence of God stood still, we had to set up camp and set up the tabernacle and, and get ready to reside there for a little bit of time. When we went to war, even once Israel was conquered and, and we had already established the, the tribal inheritances in Israel, when we went to war, whether it was through the wilderness and we come to battles or it was in the promised land as we went into Canaan and began to fight or it was post the settling of the land, every time we went to war, the presence of the Lord went with us, and it led us. And we read through Joshua over and over and over again about how the Lord fought the battle for us, and we didn't have to do anything but clean up the mess. But then one day we decide we should build a palace for the Lord. We should build a temple, right? David cries out to the Lord, and he says, I've been you know, given this peace and this great kingdom and everything going on. I now have this huge palace for me, and yet the God that I serve lives in a tent, 
Can I build a temple, a palace for you? And the Lord says, I don't want something permanent. I want something temporal. I want something mobile, right? The Lord says, I want something absolutely mobile so that I can go with you when you leave. See, the problem was when we were in the wilderness or in the, the, the garden, we were in the presence of the Lord. Everything we did was done in the presence of the Lord. Then we get kicked out of the garden because of sin, and we actually had the opportunity to walk away from the presence of the Lord. We could go do whatever we wanted because we weren't in the presence of the Lord anymore. So the Lord wanted to reside in the midst of Israel so that we could be drawn back to his presence again. But then we build the temple, and with the temple, we start going, all right, God, we got to go journey. we got to go you know, to, to wherever. we got to go in this war. We'll see you later. We'll come back to you when we're done. We'll come find you again here in Jerusalem when we're done. And we left the ark, and we left the tabernacle. We left the presence of the Lord back in Jerusalem, and then we went to go do what we wanted to do, removed from the presence of God rather than his presence leading us. Uh, and if we look in, in the Haftar Parsha, which comes from uh, 1 Kings 5, beginning of verse 16. This is finally where Solomon now is able to build the tabernacle uh, and, and to get rolling with it. But verse 16 says, So Solomon sent word to Hiram, saying, You know about uh, how my father David could not build a house for the name of Adonai, his God, because of the wars around him on every side until Adonai put them under the soles of his feet. But now, Adonai, my God, has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor bad incident. So behold, I intend to build a house for the name of Adonai, my God, as Adonai spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set upon the throne in your place, he will build the house for my name. And it's interesting, the rabbis actually look at this and they go, You know, there's a distinct difference between the tabernacle and the temple. With the tabernacle, the tabernacle was built so that the presence of the Lord could reside in the midst of the people, so that the presence of the Lord could dwell with the people of Israel. But the temple was built so the presence of the Lord could rest. It's an important concept for us to grasp. Rest means cease working, right? So the idea here, the rabbis say that the temple was built for the presence of the Lord to rest because Solomon's now found rest. There's no war on either side uh, of the nation of Israel. He doesn't have any threats to worry about outside of the kingdom of Israel. So now they can rest, which means the presence of the Lord should rest. But it's when we become complacent, we become comfortable in life, when things seem to be going well around us that we need to be on guard the most. And in order for us to be on guard, the presence of the Lord has to be on guard in our life. We have to be able to discern what's happening around us. And so with the tabernacle, which was temporal, it was mobile, we could be on alert. When the Lord said, get up and go, we left and we moved. When the Lord said, it's time to fight, we pulled arms and we went to fight behind the presence of the Lord and the presence of the Lord led the way. But then the temple was built. And not only could we leave the presence of the Lord behind us and come back to him whenever we felt like it, but we actually built the temple. We built this grand palace for the Lord so that the presence of the Lord could rest. But the Lord doesn't want to rest in our midst. He wants us to rest in his midst. He doesn't want his presence to rest in our presence. He wants us to rest in his presence. And we move through uh, 1 Kings a little further, and we go to 1 Kings 6, verse 11. Then the word of Adonai came to Solomon, saying, As for this house which you are building, if... You walk in my statutes, execute my ordinances, and keep all my mitzvot by walking in them. Then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to your father David. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not for, uh, forsake my people Israel. Again, we have this if statement. The Lord says, if you will do what I've asked of you, I will make sure this house, this temple stands. I will secure your kingdom, your throne forever if you walk with me. We go to uh, Chronicles 
Second uh, Chronicles 7:14, which is the uh, another narrative of the building of the temple. In Second Chronicles 7, we read that they've now finished building the temple. The presence of the Lord has descended upon the temple. This is huge uh, event in which the nation of Israel to hold the priesthood sees the presence of God fall. Says Solomon and the priests, just like with the tabernacle in the end of Exodus, when it was complete and the presence of God fell on the tabernacle, it put the leadership of Israel, the priesthood Moses and Aaron, it put them on their face. Before the Lord, we go to uh, 2 Chronicles 7, we see the same thing. The presence of the Lord falls. The nation falls on their face before the Lord. Uh, and what we recognize in 714 is there's this whole discussion post the celebration of Sukkot, the first celebration of Sukkot at the temple. There's this whole discussion where Solomon says, listen, as long as you walk faithfully in the Lord's covenant, the Lord is going to bless you. He's going to take care of you. He's going to provide for you. you. Everything will go your way. Everything will be great and dandy. You will walk in the will of the Lord. But the moment you turn back from him, the moment you walk away from him, everything Everything he's done to Egypt will come upon you. Everything he's done to our enemies will come upon you. Not so that you're punished, but so that you find your way back to him. So that you recognize things aren't so great outside the will of the Lord and outside the presence of the Lord and you want to come back. And so 2 Chronicles 7, 14, where he says, if my people who are called my name, by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, and, uh, and, and so on. We read all of this and we like to hone in on this one verse and we see it on political campaigns and we see all of this kind of stuff going on and we hone on to this one verse, but we ignore the fact that in order to get to the if statement, in order to get to the return, we had to leave the presence of God in the first place. We had to walk away from the presence of God. And the only way that that happens is if there's a permanent place that we've built for the presence of the Lord to entrap him in a single location so that he cannot move mobily with us. Now, don't get me wrong. God is omniscient. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He can be anywhere and everywhere at once. It's not like we literally trap him inside the tabernacle. It's a figurative image here of the way we interact with the presence of the Lord. And what's interesting is even though we may choose to walk away from the Lord from time to time, he never walks away from us. When we look at Israel as they uh, were sent into captivity in Babylon and, and dealt with Roman, uh, the Roman Empire and all these things, and it looked like Israel was at their worst, and it looked like they were forsaken by God and they had obviously forsaken God, we recognize that God was there the entire time. And that his presence still dwelt among the people, even though they didn't recognize it. Even though they didn't see it, even though they didn't know it. When we look at the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy, we recognize that even in the period of curses, the blessings are still being fulfilled. We just don't see it because we're buried in our own sin. We may still have a roof over our head and food on the table. We aren't going to be uh, thankful for it, and we feel like we had to work too hard to get it, but it's because we're outside the will of God. It's when we're in the will of God that we see the blessing. It's not that God rips the blessing away because we're not in his will anymore. It's that we have chosen to walk away from what gives us that blessing in the first place. So when we go to Hebrews chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Hebrews chapter 8. The whole book of Hebrews is really interesting. Some of you were here for our study on Hebrews. Um, I am of the mindset, and, and I'm not going to pretend like this was my finding. This was something I've gleaned from others over the years. My, my, my belief is I believe that Luke wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, and there's a lot of different reasons why Theophilus is who he wrote uh, Acts and, and Luke to, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to. And Theophilus, a lot of people go, oh, it's a title, you know, a brother, uh, a brotherly love, whatever. We look at this as, a, as though it's a title, but there was actually a high priest in Israel named Theophilus 
uh, during the first, season, first uh, century, and he was one of the shortest reigns of the priesthood ever. Uh, he was, if memory serves, on the, uh, as the high priest of Israel for less than six months um, and was kicked out of the priesthood and sent away. And uh, if memory serves, I think he was sent to Antioch of all places, but he was cast away. Um, and this Theophilus was raised as a priest. That was all he ever knew. His family were priests. His uh, descendants, he was the priesthood. All he ever knew was the priesthood. And then he kick, gets kicked out of the priesthood and and we go to look and we find out that the reason Theophilus was kicked out of the priesthood was because he became a believer in Yeshua as Messiah. Well, when he lost everything he ever knew, lost his identity, lost his family, lost his purpose, lost everything he ever knew by getting kicked out of the priesthood and sent away from his home and his family, he became discouraged. So we look at the book of Hebrews, and uh, if in fact Luke did write this, which I believe he did, but if in fact Luke did write this, odds are he wrote it the same dude he wrote the last two books for too, uh, and Luke and Acts both tell us he wrote it at Theophilus, and odds are he wrote Hebrews to Theophilus, and all of a sudden Hebrews starts to make a lot more sense if it is in fact Luke that wrote it, writing it to Theophilus, who was a guy that was raised to be a high priest, who was anointed as high priest, and because of his faith, the Messiah lost everything he knew. And all of his purpose. And so the book of Hebrews all of a sudden starts to make sense because we recognize it's not some grand portrayal of some new covenant replacing something before, but instead that it's the, 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 the author Luke writing to this former high priest who lost his role because of his faith in Messiah saying, listen, your role was a foreshadowing of something greater. You should be even more encouraged now because your role was a foreshadowing of Yeshua as our Kohen Gadol, as our high priest in the heavenlies, of Yeshua as our, our king, Melech Mashiach, our king Messiah in the heavenlies. Yeshua is the high priest in the order of Malchitzedek, which is a heavenly order, not the order of Aaron, which was an earthly order. Yeshua serves in the heavenly tabernacle, that the tabernacle and temple on earth was only modeled after. He serves as the high priest in the heavenlies. And you should be encouraged by that, not discouraged because you lost your role, encouraged because you got to serve in a role that was a foreshadowing of who Messiah would be. And don't lose faith in, in Messiah and what he's done for you just because you've lost your, your identity as a priest, but instead find a new identity in your heavenly priest who you now serve in a greater covenant and a greater priesthood. And so in Hebrews chapter 8, he's continuing this thought. The author is, and it says, verse 1, now here is the main point being said. We do have such a Kohen Gadol, a high priest, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. By the way, right hand, it doesn't mean there was a throne sitting next to God that, you know, Yeshua sat on. There was like a big throne for God the Father and a little throne to his right for Yeshua. But instead in Hebrews, we look through the Tanakh over and over and over again, we see this image of the right hand of God throughout Scripture, especially in Psalms. And what we realize is that in Hebrew, the concept of the right hand of God is his might, power, and authority. Yeshua didn't ascend to sit on a throne at the right hand of God, but instead he ascended to be the right hand of God, the might, the power, and the authority of God. And so he says he, uh, he is a priestly attendant of the holies and the true tent, which Adonai set up, not man. Not the tent on earth, not the tabernacle on earth, not the temple on earth, but the temple in the tabernacle in heaven that Moses saw on Mount Sinai that the tabernacle on earth was modeled after. For every Kohen Gadol, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary for this one Messiah also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not have been Kohen, uh, a Kohen at all, since there are those who, are offering, uh, who offer the gifts according to the Torah. They offer service and a replica and a foreshadowing of the heavenlies. One 
That is just as Moses was instructed by God when he was uh, about to complete the tabernacle. For he says, see that you make everything according to the design that was shown to you on the mountain. But now Yeshua has obtained a more excellent ministry insofar as he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on these better promises. And we go to chapter 9, verse 24. For Messiah did not enter the holies made with hands, counterparts of the true thing but into heaven itself, now to appear in God's presence on our behalf. And he did not offer himself again and again as the Kohen Gadol enters the Holy of Holies year after year with blood that is not his own, for then he would have needed to suffer again and again from the foundations of the world. But as it is, he has been revealed once and for all at the close of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment, so also Messiah was offered one once to bear the sins of many. He will appear a second time apart from sin to those eagerly awaiting him for salvation. Uh, and then 10 verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have boldness to enter the holies by the blood of Yeshua. He inaugurated a new and living way for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. We also have a Kohen Gadol over God's household. So let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and body washed with pure water. The author of Hebrews encourages us to boldly enter the Holy of Holies, the throne room, the place that here on earth only the high priest could enter, and only once a year, and only under certain circumstances, and with a very specific purpose. But you and I, because we're no longer worried about the things that are foreshadowings or replicas of things to come, we are now living in the age of those things that have already come and been carried out in the blood atonement of Messiah. You and I have the ability, because of the blood atonement of Messiah that was poured out, because Yeshua is the mediator of a greater covenant, we now have the ability to boldly enter the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. See, what was we, we say the prayer all the time, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The tabernacle was modeled after heavenly, which means that the presence of God resided on the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies on the tabernacle on earth. That means in heaven, the tabernacles of the heavenly. The Holy of Holies is the throne room of God, and that is where his presence resides, on the throne of God, the mercy seat, and the Holy of Holies in heaven. And you and I now have the ability by the blood of Yeshua Mashiach, the blood of the Lamb of God, to enter in to the Holy of Holies, to the very throne room of God. We no longer have to worry about, is God's presence in our midst? Because we are now realigned with his presence, that we can now go into his presence again. And greater is awaiting us when we get to reside in his eternal presence for all eternity in a literal sense. But you and I now have that ability to go into his presence. And in John chapter 14, verse 6, Yeshua says, um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have come to know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Uh, Jewish tradition is filled with the sages' reflections on the words, the way, haderech, the truth I met, and the life, or, or hachaim, the, uh, of the pious. Each of these special words represents a universe of meaning to one who studies and reveres Torah of the God of Israel. But more specifically, not only does Judaism look at this, but as believers, it's important that we recognize Yeshua as our way, the truth, and the life, as our haderech, our uh, ha'emet, and our hachaim, our, our life. Uh, it's a very important thing for us to grasp because how many entrances were there total in the tabernacle? Three. From outside, you had an entrance to the outer courts. 
From the outer court, you had an entrance to the inner courts or the holies. From the holies, from the inner courts, you had an entrance to the holy of holies where the presence of God dwelled. Yeshua is our way, our truth, and our life. He is our entrance through each of those entryways. He is our door to be able to enter to the literal presence of God and the holy of holies in the throne room. And because of the blood of Messiah, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come into the Father but through him, you and I have access to the throne room of God and have been commanded by God through his word, which was inspired by his Ruach HaKodesh at the uh, hand of the author of Hebrews to boldly enter his throne room. You and I now have the presence of God that one day dwelled in the tabernacle and the temple now dwells within our hearts and our lives. Our hearts, much like the Ark of the Covenant, now contains the covenant written upon, etched in flesh, as it was etched in stone on the, in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and temple. Our hearts now serve as that Ark of the Covenant, and the, that greater uh, witness of the covenant is now part of who we are. Just as the uh, presence of God served as a light within the Holy of Holies, and we saw fire uh, by night and the cloud by day as the presence of God served as a light, almost a Neretamid concept over the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. We have a Neretamid over our Torah Ark behind me, the presence of the Lord. And we look in Acts 2, we see this image of the fire upon the heads of the believers. The presence of the Lord now serves as a Neretamid over us because we are now part of that tabernacle. We are now a temporal dwelling place for the presence of the Lord here on earth. And it is now more important than ever that we as believers walk at the behest of the leading of God at all times, that we don't forsake him and leave him behind saying, we'll catch up with you one day, but that we walk with him faithfully day in and day out because the world around us needs to see the presence of the Lord leading us as they saw the presence of the Lord leading Israel. They need to fear before the God of Israel because of the sin in their lives and desire for return just as the nations in the book of Joshua feared the presence of the Lord leading Israel. They need to recognize that you and I walk in the power and the authority of God because the presence, the power, the authority of the right hand of God is now the power in our lives because His Ruach HaKodesh flows through our being because His Shekhinah, His divine glory dwells within us because we have been made the dwelling place of the Lord. The world around us needs to see the power and presence of God in us so that they can find His salvation and be a part of that tabernacle. One of the greatest mistakes, as I said, that Israel, I believe, ever made was when we decided that we no longer needed the temporal dwelling place of the Lord to lead us, but instead that we wanted to make a permanent place that we could walk away from the presence of the Lord. And I think that the Lord has now, and I believe Scripture shows this and supports it, the Lord has now brought us back to a place through the sacrifice of Yeshua that we can be restored to that temporal reality of seeing the presence of the Lord lead us in everything that we do. And we need to wholly submit our lives to his leading. We need to recognize that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And through the blood of Messiah, we can, in fact, boldly enter the Holy of Holies. We can, in fact, be on our faces before the presence of the Lord inside the Holy of Holies, like Aaron and Moses and, and the rest of Israel were outside the tabernacle, like uh, Solomon and the high priest and the nation of Israel were outside of the temple when the presence fell. We now can be on our faces in the presence of the Lord no longer separated from it. And we are awaiting the greater revelation of the eternal presence of the Lord that we will get to reside in. And I don't think there's anything greater for us to grasp from the word of God than the reality that by the blood of the lamb, we can be restored to the literal presence of God. Amen.
Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for this Shabbat. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this Parsha and the reminder of the importance of recognizing that your presence should be in our midst at all times and that we should be walking in you in everything we do. Father, I pray that you uh, reveal yourself more and more to us and through your word each and every day. And Father, that you make us more in the image and likeness of Yeshua, that others may see your presence in our lives and be hungry for your salvation and theirs. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen, Amen and Amen.